From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Every person listening to this podcast has some experience or exposure to the challenge of addiction. If not with ourselves, then with someone in our family or circle of friends. The fact of this universal exposure is a foundational belief behind the work of today's Blue Sky guest, Allison Jones Webb. Allison asserts that because of our firsthand experiences with people battling addiction, we all can be effective and motivated allies in their recovery. She takes on her challenging work with optimism and hope, pointing out that most people with substance abuse disorders do have successful recoveries. These are the norm, she says, not the exception, despite what we might see and hear in the news or witness ourselves on the streets in our communities. Allison Jones Webb is a passionate and persuasive advocate for people in recovery from addiction. And she's written an informative and inspiring book on the subject called Recovery Allies, How to Support Addiction Recovery and Build Recovery-Friendly Communities. Allison holds master's degrees in public health from the University of New England and in economic history from Johns Hopkins University. She's a trained recovery coach and recovery ambassador was a founding member of Maine's first chapter of Young People in Recovery and served on the steering committee to develop the University of Southern Maine's Collegiate Recovery Program. She's the past president of the Maine Association of Recovery Residences and now makes her home in Charlottesville, Virginia, where she's a member of the Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project. I hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation with Allison Jones Webb as much as I did. Allison Jones Webb, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, I loved your book, Recovery Allies, and in there you describe um, that you have a background in more general public health, but at this point in your life and career, you've really homed in on the subject of addiction and recovery. Why is that? So that's a really good question that I ask myself often. Um, so, <laughs> yes. um, you know, my career in public health was really focused on, as you said, uh, other topics in public health. So diabetes prevention, childhood vaccinations, that type of thing. And in, I think it was 2007, I was offered a job to start working on a project that was around substance use prevention. I was kind of excited about that. And that was around the same time that um, the overdose death rates in Maine started to rise precipitously. And so we were taken by surprise by this data. And so uh, the place where I was working sort of became an all hands on deck 
uh, to address not just substance use prevention, but treatment and recovery support services. And at that time, there was really nothing available for recovery support services, very little for uh, treatment. And so that started uh, my career path of sort of helping to build that infrastructure, uh, both through the healthcare system, through policy development, through community-based organizations that address recovery uh, support. But as that work unfolded, I started to make more and more connections to substance use in my personal life, in my family life. I am a family member, an affected family member, like millions and millions and millions of Americans. And in my family, it was not something that we ever talked about. And so uh, I I give huge amount of credit to my parents for keeping me and my siblings safe uh, without substance use in our home. But in our extended family, there was a lot of it. And uh, I just never really understood what was going on. And as I um, delved into this work and as I met people in recovery and as I talked to them about their own recoveries, I began to understand, oh, what the backdrop was in my own family. And one of the most uh, rewarding things about the work uh, and also writing the book is that people told me these really hopeful, really positive stories. That was the part that was missing from when I was growing up. There was just this negative, oh, something's going on there. So, um, so I became pretty passionate about the positive side of things and about celebrating people who turn their lives around uh, and, you know, in really difficult circumstances. And that continues to this day. Amazing. And, and that's the part of, of the book that really stood out to me. I'll read a quote. You said, beyond all the data and research I had acquired, I'd seen enough true transformations in people to know that there is always, always hope for healing and for situations to improve. And you said that recovery from addiction is more the norm than the exception. I think that would, I know that surprised me, frankly, and I think that would surprise most people. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the data are pretty clear uh, that there are more people who recover from substance use disorder than don't. Um, and so most people find a way uh, to heal and to get better. And our our perception is quite the opposite because, in part, uh, people who have the most severe form of substance use disorders, who have addiction, have a much harder time and are much more visible in our in our lives, on the streets, uh, and so forth. But they're also more visible in the media, and so the press really uh, doesn't give very good coverage of people who have successful lives after a substance use disorder. And so our perceptions really are skewed that way. And related to the perceptions and back to family, you also wrote that when you learn more about your family, you said, and my attitudes towards addiction and about non-judgmental empathy and how hard that is to give sometimes. Why are we just hardwired to be judgmental about this? It is, it's a real thing and it's a stigma and it's not helpful. And that was something that your book helped me with, that this isn't something to be judgmental about. It's a real disease. So how should we be thinking about that? And why do, why do we, you think it's so hard? Well, so I encourage you not to beat yourself up over it, and the same to your readers. Um, I think that uh, there's a very good reason that we have this stigma, and that is because the information that we've had about substance use disorder and addiction in the past has been pretty crummy information. 
for the general public. Um, and there's been just a very specialized, a small sector of the, com- of the uh, professional community who's been very specialized in substance use treatment. And our, our reimbursement mechanism has reinforced that it's just a certain number of people who have certain degrees who do treatment, and the rest of us are left without any information. And in fact, you know, substance use disorder, it's a community issue. It's a family issue. It's something for all of us. But in the past, it really has been discussed as a a treatment issue for certain people who have credentials who can treat it. So, so that, so that what I would say is, you know, don't beat yourself up uh, because there's a reason that we had these attitudes and those attitudes are changing. And so there's more and more information now about recovery. And so that's the other thing is that our information in the past had really been treatment oriented towards the most severe forms of substance use disorder. And there is very little research on recovery and that, that, uh, that, uh, has completely changed. And there's a lot of research now on recovery, what supports people in recovery. We know the earlier that you uh, start your recovery journey, the better the chances are that you will have the successes that you want. And so I think the the lack of information is pretty critical. Um, and, you know, in terms of stigma, I really can't tell you why, but I can tell you that substance use disorder is the most stigmatized condition Globally, it's not just here; it's globally, and I think perhaps it's uh, because we see we see the downstream negative effects of what happens to people who have a long period of using without any help in between, um, and some of those effects are pretty negative. Um, and so, you know, that's what we see; that's what we learn; that's what we know. Right, and and like you said, you mentioned professionals. There's so many things in our society and in the healthcare space. In particular, I think where we just assume the professionals—that's their thing; they'll take care of it. But you say in your book, uh, I'll quote you again: "Peers are more important than professionals," and that's something I don't think we think much about with addiction. Can you can you describe that and, and why you would reach that conclusion that peers are actually more important than professionals? So um, yes, uh, so there are a couple of things that I will say about that. One is if. I think about my own life experiences, and I'm not a person in recovery, but, you know, I've had my struggles. Uh, If I think about my own experiences, the people that in the end have been most helpful for me over the long haul have been my friends, Uh, not uh, healthcare providers or mental health providers. Of course, they were helpful. But in the end, you know, in the long run, because life is a marathon and so is recovery, um, the people that are peers that have stuck around, that know about what it's like, um, are far more helpful. I would say pretty much every single person that I talk to said that. It's not like that was a little anomaly. Um, and I think it's because, you know, treatment and, and healthcare providers, uh, social workers, they, they deal with one little tiny slice of our lives when we have an addiction. And the truth is we have whole lives, like we're full people. And that little tiny slice is really important. And sometimes it can get us over the hump from being, you know, a chaotic user to making some changes. But in the long run, you know, we live in the community, we work in the community, our lives are much broader than that little tiny slice. Um, And so that's also the reason that allies are important is because, um, you know, when people um, are in early recovery, those peers are so incredibly important and really help them change their networks, their social networks, 
um, to, to networks of people who aren't using or using chaotically and also help them, you know, kind of understand what was happening and kind of think about, think about things in a new way. But beyond that, you know, allies can be so incredibly helpful in being there for uh, emotional support if you're a family member, um, housing if you happen to be a landlord, um, employment if you're, uh, you know, if you are a businessman and you're an employer, if you're a professor professor in a university, there that is such an important role to play. As in, you can have a, such an important role as an ally. So. The treatment, again, the treatment is just like one tiny sliver. And when we, again, when we look at the media and the media says, what can we do to address this problem of opioid overdose deaths? I would argue, number one, that the problem isn't the opioids, the problem is addiction. And there are lots of substances that get involved in there. But but then uh, the solution that the media most typically provide to us is more treatment, more beds, more treatment beds. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's incomplete. Allison comes to her work on addiction recovery from a broad background in public health. This experience likely helps her see that helping people with substance use disorder is best done with a holistic approach, not just with late stage medical treatment. A combination of the opioid abuse and overdose outbreak in Maine, and a realization of how much her own family had faced addiction challenges, led her to make this her life's work. One of the first things that struck me when I read Allison's book was the notion that addiction recovery is the norm, not the exception. I was less than surprised to learn that a driver of our misperception of this fact is the way that the media portrays and emphasizes the problem cases. Go figure. And while Allison, of course, supports the role of the traditional healthcare practitioners, she emphasizes that peers are more important and impactful than professionals. And this is a key theme of her work. Another point of her book that stands out is her view that we need to focus on addiction not just the drugs of choice. Hence her emphasis, not only on controlled prescription drugs, but also more culturally accepted products like alcohol. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Allison to talk about the importance of personal connection for people in recovery, a concept that was made clear to me in an earlier Blue Sky podcast. We talked before recording about an episode I did with Kevin Adler and, and homelessness and, and the book that he's written about it. And one of the big takeaways from his book is that one of the things we don't talk enough about in, in homelessness and the unhoused and getting them back in, in a safer condition is disconnection from people, from family, from those who – the book is called When We Walk By. People won't even look them in the eye when they walk by. And you make a very similar point and you quoted someone else who said the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. The Surgeon General has identified loneliness as an epidemic. Can you talk about that? And, and Because you'll also talk some more in the book about recovery and sobriety aren't necessarily the exact same thing. So if you could talk about the importance of, of literally – personal connection in addiction recovery, that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Sure. So again, I, you know, I would encourage you and your listeners to think about their own lives in times when things haven't been going all that well for them uh, and uh, with substances in the mix or not. Um, And, you know, when you're alone, it's pretty hard to deal with your problems. 
And when you isolate yourself, which is one of the things that addiction does, people who use isolate. Yes. Uh, and, I, and, you know, people in the recovery community can spot that right away in someone who's in early recovery and all of a sudden they're not connecting anymore. Oh, they're not showing up to meetings yep. or whatever. They're like, oh, let's go reach out hmm. because that person might be in trouble. The research is coming at us slowly about this issue of connection and why we need it. And so I don't really know that research, but I can say that, you know, based on my own personal experiences, once you start to be alone and then you're more alone and then you're more alone, which is what addiction does to you, your life can spiral out of control pretty quickly. And, and as you know, the person who was writing about homelessness, as he, as he learned, homelessness, it's one of the most lonely experiences. Um, and so, um, I don't want to downplay the, the, importance of all the services and support that are necessary for people in early recovery to kind of get going. But I want to be clear with your listeners that sometimes, you know, a kind word or a conversation or a question to someone who's in early recovery can mean a lot. And I um, I will say that some of the people that I interviewed, um, who I mentioned have become friends, um, have told me, Allison, when you asked me that question, what do, what do you think you'd like to do with your life? They had, I don't know if they had truly never been asked that question, but they don't remember it. And, you know, when, um, when Allison, like when you reached out and asked me, could I do this thing with you? You know, we were doing some professional work. When you asked me to do something, nobody ever asked me that before. And so those are connections that we can make as allies, we can make that turn out to be really important. Um, and so I wouldn't discount the small interactions uh, as well as that bigger sort of community connection. And I'd like to go back to something you said before that our focus should move away from a specific drug or substance and really focus on the problem of addiction. And a point you make early in the book is that we tend to downplay alcohol. As a, as a problem, for example, because opioid gets the headlines and the big lawsuits against the drug manufacturers, all, all for understandable reasons. But you th showed some statistics. The, death, the number of deaths in the United States from alcohol is comparable to any other substance, and yet we don't talk about it too much. And there are plenty of other things that we know people get addicted to. So how should we think about the causes of addiction um, more specifically than being focused drug by drug by drug? Help us with that. So, yeah, that's um, we could do hours and hours and hours <laughs> of conversation about that. Um, and there's a lot of research on that. And so it's pretty clear, you know, some people find themselves with a problem. And I don't want to say addiction as a severe problem, but find themselves with some problem with substance use just because they started using and it was kind of fun and then it got out of hand. Yeah, right. And then, you know, what... What uh, what typically happens in addition to that sort of, well, I just like I just did too much at a certain time and, you know, I can get my life back together. But the bigger issue around addiction is that the younger people start to use substances, the more likely they are to become addicted because their brains are forming 
And, um, you know, the brain uh, is responding to that uh, substance that's making him feel good um, and sort of creates this new pathway for feeling good and dealing with problems that in the end can end up being pretty unhealthy. And so the younger people start using, the greater their chances are of having a pretty significant problem, which is why I tell every single parent, delay onset of use. Every single year that you mm. delay onset of use in your child is like is, is a help to them, uh, and it it builds their uh, their sort of social capital in their lives. But um, the other issue is also why do people use? Why do young people use? Usually, uh, there's something going on in their lives that either makes them very unhappy, they've had some type of trauma. Uh, which is, uh, I'm not an expert in trauma, but every single person I talked to that ended up with that severe addiction had some trauma. And so, um, and, you know, different people define trauma differently and different people deal with it differently. But when you're young and you deal with it by using substances, you sort of set yourself up for later addiction. And so one of the things that, um, and, and that's any drug, any drug, mm, right? That's, right. that is their people respond differently to drugs and they find the one that they like the most or the one that's most available or the one they can afford. Um, but they're the, the reason that people are using is the important thing, which is they're just dulling the pain. Yes. And so what can we do about that? Well, I mentioned early onset. So, you know, delay, 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 uh, put in all types of, um, uh, support for chil- for children and young adults, uh, adolescents, so that we know when they're struggling and we can help them when they're struggling and we can help them find a different solution. Um, and if they do start to use, then uh, the rest of the story is, I think I mentioned this earlier, the earlier you intervene, the better your chances of not continuing with a full-blown addiction. And this like, so one of our old ideas about addiction is that people have to hit rock bottom in order for them to get better, right? for them to change their, want to change their lives. And that's pretty clearly not the case. Yes. Um, and so again, you know, so here we've got, we've got prevention, we've got early intervention, uh, we've got building supports around people once they enter recovery. Those are the kinds of things that can address the addiction problem in addition to that bigger issue of, you know, we live in a society where people are hurting. People sure. are hurting. Yep. And uh, that, I think, drives a lot of the chaotic use. So on that point about addiction versus a drug, I wonder, I'd love to get your thoughts on whether or not we send mixed messages to people in terms of policy. And one that comes to mind is legalizing marijuana, for example. Now, I know that the laws don't allow 15-year-olds, but I think it sends a signal that Maybe this isn't so bad. Uh, maybe this is the safe drug or the the not less addictive drug or non-addictive, some people would say. Do you have a response to that or thoughts on that? Um, my thought about specifically about legalization of marijuana and cannabis is that the train has left the station. Um, yes. And so, um, you know, and or or we're not going to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Um, yeah, right. And so um, really, I think uh, the issue really isn't do we legalize or not, but how do we do it? And yes. when we when people tell me, oh, well, we'll do it just like alcohol, I can turn around and say, eh, I'm not so sure we did a good job with alcohol. If you look again at those numbers of people who have problems with alcohol. So um, I, um, again, so let's just step back for a second. Why do people use? They use because they're 
often in pain or there's something in their lives that's not working and that drug fills a gap. And so um, doesn't matter which drug it is. It could be cannabis, could be alcohol. And so what we really need to do in addition to dealing with the um, regulation, like real regulation, not I think we have not figured out cannabis regulation yet. Uh, figure out how to regulate the products, the sales, uh, sales to minors. Uh, can you drive while you're high? That type of thing. Figure out all that stuff at the same time that we're addressing, uh, making sure kids are safe uh, in that environment, that they've got resilience, that they have people to talk to, that if they are in pain, the only solution they have is not to use something. And I, I don't know if this is part of your work and just tell me if it's not, but I wonder too, we're focusing on substances. I don't know if this is an area of expertise for you or not. And if, if it isn't, just let me know. But I wonder if some of the things you're talking about apply to addictions, not to substances. So for example, I talked about legalizing marijuana. Now sports gambling is state by state becoming more allowed and accepted and, and even sports like baseball that have always been dead against it or embracing it. Do similar patterns exist for people who get into other addictions like gambling or any, you know, exercise that might be a healthier addiction, but people become addicted to it. It can be an issue. Are the same similar principles apply? So sort of, um, and, and I am not an expert. You're right about that. But I will say that uh, people are, researchers are thinking about food addictions, for example, mm. gambling yep. as an addiction uh, and trying to understand how those, uh, pro- they're called process addictions, how those work in the brain uh, and how, how what, like what types of interventions could be helpful. And I think, you know, on the gambling side of things, um, th- so this sports gambling is, uh, look out, hold on to your hats because, because in the same way that as we've been legalizing marijuana, there's been a pretty significant uptick in youth use. As, as that sports gambling becomes more and more uh, widespread, my understanding is that uh, sports gambling on college campuses is twice as high as among the general population. And remember, right, those can be young brains. Uh, they're not kids, but they're young adults, young adult brains that um, may be more susceptible to just like continuing to gamble. And so I do think, I, I think it's something that we're going to be dealing with. And now, a quick break and recommendation to fans of the Blue Sky Podcast for another weekly show we think you'll enjoy. It's called Two Lives. Each week on Two Lives, you'll hear about someone who faced darkness and how that moment transformed them. The title comes from the quote, we all have two lives. The second begins the moment we realize we only have one. It's a well-crafted, character-driven, nonfiction, narrative storytelling podcast that's been featured on Apple Podcasts as a show we're loving and listed among Spotify's best episodes. It just won a Signal Award for the Best Indie Podcast and was a runner-up at the International Women's Podcast Awards. And I like this description of their audience. They say, Two Lives appeals to people who are drawn to the self-help section of the bookstore and binge Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Two Lives spotlights diverse, dynamic characters from the BIPOC, LGBTQ, disabled, and neurodivergent communities. It's no surprise that this podcast comes from a creator who experienced her own two lives moment. 
This is a show worth checking out, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to making a personal connection with others, even people in the throes of addiction, it's remarkable how much a little curiosity and kindness can go a long way. Allison illustrates this point beautifully when she describes the response she's gotten when asking people the simple question, what do you want to do with your life? Steve D., another Blue Sky guest, also emphasized the importance of delaying the onset of use. Allison points out that the earlier the onset, the more likely the addiction. And not to give parents in the audience any more to worry about with their kids, it is important to keep this in mind as they move through their school years. Steve also agreed with the point Allison makes here that an addict doesn't necessarily have to hit rock bottom to recover successfully. All the more reason for allies to help out anywhere along someone's timeline of addiction. And now, back to our conversation. So again, your book is called Recovery Allies, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about how anyone listening to this might be a more effective ally. And you say in your book, we can create a recovery desert hostile to people in recovery or recovery-friendly community. What are the steps people can take to make their community more recovery-friendly? One thing that is incredibly important, which is what we're doing right now, is getting educated um, and really understanding the nature of addiction, uh, that people uh, don't choose addiction. They're, you know, they don't wake up one morning and say, I would like to be an opioid addict. (laughs) So, uh, so that, uh, there are so many, you know, factors in our lives that play into, you know, these severe substance use disorders and to get educated about that and to understand better, not just the addiction side, but the recovery side and what the process of recovery is, which is it's putting your life back together. And so, um, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means if you have children, getting your children back. If you have uh, siblings, making amends with your siblings. If you lost your job, figuring out what it is, what what's your job going to be? What's your career path going to be? All of, in every single one of those areas where people are getting their lives together, there are rules for allies. And so, you know, to create recovery-friendly communities. So, you know, individuals in recovery have their peers, they have their family members, they have their extended family, they have their employers, they have their coworkers, they have landlords, they go to the bank. Um, all of these things that happen in the community are places where allies have an important role. And uh, so in terms, in addition to getting ex- educated, uh, to really think about your own attitudes about addiction so that when you are interfacing with people, either that are in recovery or with family members who have individuals in recovery, your language isn't uh, stigmatizing and you say something kind as opposed to something negative. Um, And you find ways, um, you know, you find ways to support your coworkers who may have a family member who's struggling. Um, And so those, all, all of those places where we are in the community are where we can change the conversation. We can uh, change policies, we can change procedures, uh, we can, wherever we are, right? So whatever your role is in the community, that's where you act. And so once you get educated, you figure out, okay, what's my best move here? What can I do? 
and go from there. You talked about language just now, and I, I, you spent a lot of time in the book addressing the importance of language. And I know there are people listening who think it can get frustrating sometimes. You're always trying to say the right thing and not say the wrong thing and get canceled and that sort of thing. But in terms of this field, using the proper language can be extremely helpful. And you describe some of this as person-first language. So instead of an addict or a user, you know, a person with substance use disorder, a person with a problem with alcohol, leading with a person. Can you talk about that and the importance of that? Sure. So, and, and you're right, the field is always changing. And um, when I started uh, this work, you know, 15 years ago, we, we did talk about substance abuse. We no longer do yep. that. We talk about substance use. I fully expect that the language will continue to develop yes. and evolve. Um, and so uh, the, the, the person-first um, aspect of language, I think no matter what happens in the future with changes in language, I think that will remain for, for person-first, meaning we put the person in our minds first before yes. whatever their activity is, whatever their challenges are. Um, and that could be a person with mental health challenges or a person yes. with an alcohol use disorder, um, to talk about it that way. And I'll also say, uh, and I found myself in this situation many times, if you don't know, and if you think, hmm, I haven't been following this very closely, or I'm not following it at all, I just know what I read in the papers, papers are not a good source of uh, good language, ask, just ask. Yes. And so the people that are around you, you know, they may have a different way of thinking about things, and they, they'll tell you, hey, it's cool with me if you want to say whatever, um, but ask. And then, you know, be very respectful when they tell you something, respect what they said and do what they mm -hmm. said. Yes. Um, and so that's that's how I have approached it. And the other thing that that will do is if you ask and you listen, uh, you've already started a conversation either between two people or in your community about substance use disorder, about recovery, about how we're here. I, You know what? I don't know what to do, but I want to do the right thing. I want to say the right thing. You've already done something right then and there around stigma and you've started a conversation. Right. And, and it's, it's again, back to, to Kevin Adler and homelessness. Um, we talk about the homeless and we put all these people in this one bucket and don't humanize them. And none of us want to be labeled by one thing, you know, white guy, you know, pick it, you know, your religion, Catholic, uh, you know, Jewish, Muslim, we're all multifaceted people. And so I, I would assume that that same thing applies here. And anyone who's struggling with these things is a person who is struggling with this. And it seems to me that that, again, people get hung up on language, but in this case, it's, it's extremely helpful. I think it's important to remember, too, that when you're talking about a person who's homeless or a person who has substance use disorder, you're picking the worst time in their life to identify them. And the, the, the worst things that are happening to them, trust me, when they're homeless or if they have a substance use disorder, chances are pretty great that this is the worst time in their life and you're picking, you're choosing to identify them that way. And if you continue to do that after they're in recovery, you're again, you're picking the worst time. The, the worst things that happened, the worst things that they did, things were so awful, and that's how you're identifying them. And so, you know, talking about a person in long-term recovery, pretty important as well. Sure. So we talked earlier about the importance of peers being being greater than those that of, of professionals, but professionals play a role. 
and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I was involved with the the main hospital system, uh, main health. At the time, I think it was a real turning point in the opioid crisis where the the profession realized they played a very important role in creating it in the first place, over-prescribing, um, and laws have been changed and that sort of thing. Do you think that medical professionals are better trained and better equipped now to play their role more effectively in dealing with addiction? Or is it – because I just don't know if they're trained in med school or there's nursing training to address these issues. Can you talk about that? Because while they might not be the most important component, they still play a role in, in treating addiction and, and helping with recovery. Sure. And I think they're, in, they're very often an important intersection point for uh, individuals who may be seeking treatment. And they're an important intersection per point for family members who are looking for information. You know, when you have someone that you love who is, who is in active addiction and you're trying to help, you, I will just say this from personal experience, it is a moment of exceeding anxiety. It is so difficult and you are so desperate. And healthcare providers are one place that people go for information like, whoa, what can we do? So I would answer your question by saying that, um, number one, it depends on where you live because a lot of the stuff that's been done around supporting healthcare providers in their prescribing practices and then doing education with healthcare providers around substance use disorder and what the, and, and then beyond that, educating healthcare providers about what's available for recovery support services. I think that's really a state by state for the most part. Okay. And there are some federal regulations, but for the most part, some states okay. have taken it on, others less so. And in terms of, you know, educating health care providers, I'll say two things. One is med schools, nursing schools, we have a long way to go. We have a very long way to go. And that's not to say that yes. people aren't working on it. They are. Uh, and they care a lot. Sure. Uh, but we do have a long way to go. With cha- I mean, think about it. Changing curriculum in a medical school, that's like not something that happens overnight. And I think those of us that are not in that healthcare field need to be a little sympathetic to that, like change is a little slower than we want it to be. And the other thing that I'll say uh, is what I've observed, but the research also shows that healthcare providers learn best from their peers. And so when you get a doctor, we'll still say doctor in this situation, when you get a doctor who's really understood what uh, addiction is doing to her patients and her practice, and she starts talking about it, and she starts talking to her peers, that's how doctors learn. And that's one of the reasons doctors have grand rounds, right? Because they're talking to each other. So doctors have a big role to play, not only with their patients, but also with their peers as they become educated and as they gain understanding about what they can uh, do to kind of address um, addiction in their practices and then also in their communities. Allison says something here that I think is both simple and enabling for all of us. She says that when it comes to supporting people trying to recover from addiction, we should act within our role in our community. We don't have to take on a supersized presence or steer out of our lanes, but instead we can use our current position in a constructive way with people who are struggling. And as Blue Sky guest Kevin Adler encouraged when thinking about people who are living on the streets, 
Allison also believes in the importance of a person-first approach toward those battling addiction. Now, back to my final segment with Allison Jones-Webb. And we're focusing on, on peers, professionals, and but given the statistics, there's a decent chance there are people listening to our conversation who may be struggling themselves with addiction or the onset of something that doesn't feel quite right. I know we saw a lot of that coming out of the pandemic. And again, it's not a focus of your book, but if that's the case, what can someone do who's personally worried about themselves and, and a path that they might be headed down? What, what would you recommend as the first one or two steps towards recovery? Um, I would suggest uh, getting informed. Uh, you might be surprised, but a lot of people who are um, approaching or living in active addiction really don't know very much about it. They just know that something is something is really wrong in my life. Um, and so getting informed, and there are a lot of different ways to do that. I'm going to give you a website, which is super, super important. It's called recoveryanswers.org. Uh, it's a website where all the current research on recovery and some, you know, treatment stuff it is. It's the most recent. It's very accessible to professionals, non-professionals, family members. Uh, and so I would suggest that. I think I would really suggest finding someone you trust to talk to about it. And I think that is really hard because I have, uh, you know, I have heard, uh, you know, people have said to me, yeah, well, so I opened up to my best friend and she just, you know, she called me a blah, blah, blah. She called me an X and a Y and it was terrible. So, um, so thinking about maybe that's a possibility. Uh, some communities um, have recovery support uh, services and they have recovery community centers. And those probably are the very best place to go uh, because you can go, if you're in active use, you do not have to be in recovery to go to a recovery community center. You, you go, you show up, and they'll have uh, coffee for starters. Mm -hmm. uh, but they'll also have people who've been where you are and who are able to say, you know what, let's just take a break here. Let's sit down and talk. What, you know, what yep. can I do for you? Yep. Um, so those are the things that I would suggest is to get informed. If you feel like you have someone you can talk to, do that. Um, I'll, you know, I'll also say that, you know, people in recovery have told me, you know, my uncle, like he's the guy that took me to the doctor. Hmm. He's the guy that asked me if yeah. I was okay every single time, you know, we had a yes. family gathering. So you might, you might have somebody, you know, that's got your back uh, if yep. you could think about it. And once you're in recovery, however that's defined, is that lifelong? Sometimes you hear someone say he's a recovered alcoholic or a recovered drug addict. Is, is recovery for life? I mean, is that just something you're constantly having to monitor once you've been through it? Well, that is a good question, and there's not a good answer. <laughs> okay, okay. So some people do uh, say that they are recovered, uh, and they uh, they experience their uh, change in life as, uh, you know, that's something that happened to me 10 years ago, and I'm done with it, and I'm yes. recovered, and yes. I don't even think about it anymore. Right. And some people uh, will tell you that uh, every day they're in recovery, like they start every day uh, right. thinking about their recovery. So it really depends on the individual. It also depends on what uh, support services and what programs an individual might have gone through. And so people who have, whose recovery is very focused on their faith have a different understanding than people who, uh, who have a, 
a more secular recovery yes. or people who have medication versus people who don't. So it all depends. Um, the research does show us for people who have addictions and who enter recovery that at the five-year mark, hmm. that's where their, uh, their chronic disease, we'll call you know, substance use disorder or chronic and relapsing disease, that's when they enter sort of the general population hmm. of risk for substance use disorder. And that's the same, that's sort of the same way that we think about uh, recovery from or dealing with a chronic illness like diabetes. Right. right? I was thinking of cancer. There's, there's certain cancers where you say if you make it five years post, you're probably in good shape. Oh. But you're still you're still living with um, if you were you know if part of your uh, substance use was from a lot of childhood trauma that doesn't go away right, right? that doesn't go away because you stop using and so there are still things that you need to be dealing with um, and thinking about and that for all of us not just people in recovery that's just a lifelong chore or task and we haven't talked about Alcoholics Anonymous but but AA is is an organization that has stood the test of time it seems. And I know people who have who swear by it and might be, you know, 25 years since their last drink, but they go to meetings when they're traveling, they find a local chapter. Is are those kinds of organizations you think important as as allies as well? So uh, sure, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, for for um, so there is recent research on 12-step programs which has sort of solidified our understanding what is important about them, why are they helpful? Because they help people change their networks. Yes. Uh, and they create that connection, they create a bond. Yep. And so um, there are other sort of support groups, um, but AA of course is the one that most of us know about. You know, looking at a person's uh, recovery and their trajectory, many, uh, not many, some people will start out with a very 12-step focused recovery and that helps them tremendously. And then they morph and they change and something yes. else becomes important and so forth. And so, you know, as allies and as family members, it's very important for us to uh, withhold our judgment about what the right recovery path is because we can say, well, you haven't gone to meetings for a long time. What's wrong? Yeah. And it may be that the meetings weren't helpful, the 12-step meetings weren't helpful, but there's another uh, support that a person has found. And again, in my experience, people over time, uh, they find different supports in their faith. They may find supports in physical activity. They, you know, it, it changes. It just yep. changes like all of us do over time. Um, but that five-year mark is is where most people uh, where we know statistically that most people will will enter that general population. And it seems, too, there's nothing more powerful or helpful than being around people who've been through something like what you've been through. So it's one thing to go to your doctor and be told this, that, or the other, and it's another to be embraced by a community that has lived what you're living. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And for people who have mental health challenges, which often go hand in hand with substance use, it's the same. It's the same. So let's go back to where we started as we wrap up. Um, and this journey that you personally have been on, starting with a better understanding what your own family has dealt with, you mentioned your optimism as you approach this subject. How are you feeling now compared to when you first set off on this journey before you wrote the book? More optimistic, less encouraged, struggling to keep going? Where are you in, in this, uh, this journey that you personally are on? 
Um, in my personal journey, um, I remain ever optimistic. Uh, I don't think I could get up in the morning if I weren't optimistic. And I continue to see people. People continue to get in touch with me who are in recovery. I continue to see just the marvelous uh, gifts of recovery that people experience. Um, and I think I find the world more confusing now than when I started the book. Because, you know, when you delve into a, pro a topic... And you yes. really need to learn about it. Turns out it's not as simple as you thought. Um, right. And so, you know, the recovery research continues to emerge and young people uh, continue to find ways to define and redefine recovery, which is a fascinating thing uh, yes. as they, you know, they're, they're a different generation than we are, uh, different yes. generations think about things differently. And so that's really fascinating to, to see as well. And, you know, in my personal uh, journey, I am gratified, truly gratified to see the growth that my family members have had uh, as they have, you know, tackled their, uh, their challenges and entered recovery. Fantastic. Well, Allison Jones-Webb, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I highly recommend your book, Recovery Allies. It helped me a lot in thinking through this complicated issue. Um, keep up the great work. I know you're busy. I appreciate this time you spent with me. Thank you very much for being a guest on Blue Sky. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest in the issue. While encouraging all of us to be allies for those who are challenged by addiction, Allison emphasizes the particular value of getting help from people who have themselves recovered from the same disease. And I'll mention again the website recoveryanswers.org. I checked it out and it's beautifully done and full of all kinds of great information and resources. And it's also great to hear the optimism with which Allison continues to approach her work. After all, she says, if she weren't optimistic, how could she get out of bed in the morning? This kind of attitude can help us all as we take on life's challenges and also try to serve as allies for others. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky conversation with Allison Jones Webb and are inspired to be a recovery ally yourself. Before you go, it'd be great if you would leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use, whether that be Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or others. And if you like this sort of uplifting content, check out the Optimism Institute on social media and sign up for our monthly newsletter at theoptimisminstitute.com. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.